The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 9. We'll be reading to verse 18 this evening. The word of the Lord. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you will anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this evening. The word of our God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 9. Is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. You are not Elijah. Uh, one of the most important things to keep in mind as you think through this portion of God's word is that you are not Elijah. Now, when you've heard this passage preached in the past, it's a famous passage, so most of you have, it is very likely that the pastor sought to help you identify with the passage on the basis of psychology. You know, you have bad days. Elijah's having a bad day. Please don't react the way that Elijah did, feeling sorry for himself. Uh, sad to say, I've heard that sermon several times. But it is wrong on so many levels. And to start with, you and I are not Elijah. Elijah was the Lord's unique spokesman, a prophet raised up in the likeness of Moses, who had been sent to Mount Sinai, not on his own will, but by the angel of the Lord. Elijah is God's man on God's mission, and the events that take place in this passage will change the entire history of Israel until the coming of Jesus Christ. Instead of turning to this passage to see a reflection of ourselves, we are called to look in this passage to learn about the living God, about his plans for redemptive history, and for how those plans find their climax when the Lord Jesus Christ would come and die for his people. Elijah had desperately longed for the day when the Lord would turn the northern tribes of Israel back to himself. Uh, please remember when I say Israel this evening, I'm talking about the northern tribes. All throughout Elijah's life, the northern tribes, which are called Israel, are a distinct nation from Judah in the south. Elijah had spent his adult life longing for the day when the Lord would turn the northern tribes of Israel back to himself. He had prayed for the Lord to shut up the heavens, and the Lord shut up the heavens for three and a half years, and it did not rain, and a devastating drought had followed. Then Elijah had prayed that the Lord would send fire from heaven, demonstrating that he is Lord, and the Lord answered that prayer with fire. And then Elijah prayed to the Lord that he would send rain again, and the life-giving, nourishing rain fell from heaven at the Lord's command. Nevertheless, the people never turned back to their God. In fact, rather quickly, many of them go back into Baal worship. So in nearly utter despair, Elijah heads down to Judah. Uh, you'll recall he's fleeing from his, for his life as well, as Jezebel has vowed that the one thing she wants on earth more than anything else is for Elijah to be dead. And so Elijah goes out into the wilderness and he pleads for the Lord to take his life. 
How does the Lord respond? Instead of rebuking his exhausted servant, the Lord twice sends an angel to him with food and drink. And significantly, the angel tells Elijah about this current mission to go to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. In the supernatural strength of the food that he received, Elijah would travel for 40 days and 40 nights without eating again to meet with the living God. Uh, Elijah here is clearly retracing the steps of Moses. Or perhaps it would be better to say he's reenacting the steps of Moses that Moses took when Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai after the incident of the golden calf. You'll remember that uh, at the incident of the golden calf, God is going to wipe Israel out. At least that's what it seems is going to take place. Moses ascends Mount Sinai in the midst of this great theophany, this mighty display of God's power. He, he's hidden, as it were, in the cleft of the rock. In Elijah's case, that's called a cave. And he seeks the Lord's blessing and forgiveness on his people, even though his people have sinned so greatly against him. Mount Horeb, the, the Mount of God, is also called Mount Sinai throughout the Pentateuch. But why is Elijah heading there? He wasn't running for safety. Uh, Beersheba, where he had made it to last week, is actually on the border between Israel and Judah. It's 100 miles away from Jezebel. Uh, he's far out of Jezebel's reach. And if all he sought was safety, he could have just moved a little bit further south into Judah. See, Elijah is not in this passage running from something. He is running to something. I know I'm beating this a bit as a horse, but it's essential for us to see that Elijah is a type of Moses figure. Uh, Moses, of course, is the fountainhead of the prophets. And like Moses, Elijah is distinguished by the dramatic miracles he performed, such as calling down fire from heaven. Last week we heard about Elijah going for 40 days without food or water and ascending Mount Horeb. Tonight we read of Elijah hiding in the cleft of a rock and having the Lord speak to him there. The author of 1 Kings clearly wants us to make this connection. In fact, it is essential to see the connection between Moses and Elijah to understand what Elijah is trying to do. You remember what the people of God, that is Israel, did when Moses first went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Well, when the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai, he shakes the mountain. There's a visible display of his glory. And the people are in awe. Indeed, they are utterly terrified by the thick cloud, the lightning, the thunder, and the shaking of the earth. Yet perversely, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, that is, the very stipulations of the covenant between God and his people, the people down below make a golden calf. They dance around it in worship. And they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They were crassly breaking the covenant, even while the Lord was writing the covenant stipulations, that is the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone with his own figure, finger. 
and the Lord is furious with a profound anger. Uh, he sends Moses back down the mountain. So Moses has the Ten Commandments. He goes down the mountain. He, he meets with Joshua. They're going down the mountain together now, and they hear this loud crying in the camp. It sounds like war. And that, that's what Joshua says. But when they realize what's going on, that the people are engaged in crass idolatry, Moses takes the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he smashes them on the ground. Now I want you to remember that wasn't simply because Moses was angry. To be sure, Moses was angry at the rebellion of the people. But it wasn't simply a matter of anger. Moses understood that if a holy God takes this law and applies it to this people, this people is doomed. So Moses goes down the mountain, he rebukes the people, he calls the Levites to himself, and they go out and they strap on their swords and they execute people in the camp, executing God's divine justice against the rebellion of the people who've so quickly abandoned their God. Here's the key point. After rebuking the people and having the Levites put thousands of their fellow Jews to death with the sword, Moses ascends Mount Horeb once again, and he pleads with the Lord to renew his covenant with the people of Israel, to pass over into the promised land as God in the midst of his people. And astonishingly, in his amazing grace, the Lord agrees to do that very thing. You understand now what Elijah is trying to do in reenacting the steps of Moses? Uh, Elijah's had the same experience. God has shown his marvelous glory on Mount Carmel. He, he has sent fire from heaven to consume the, the sacrifice. And actually, you know, you read the story, it's, it's pretty fascinating. The fire falls and consumes the oxen, the water, the stones of the altar, and it even licks up the dust. The people cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, but they do not turn back to worshiping the Lord. They go back into their idolatry, just like the golden calf. And Elijah's saying to the Lord, remember Moses, O Lord, do it again. I, I know these people are stiff-necked, they don't deserve it, but they didn't deserve it back then either. Will you not renew your covenant with all the people of Israel. That's what he's doing. Don't send them into judgment, O Lord. Yes, Israel has broken your covenant and run like a whore after other gods, but I am pleading with you, please renew your covenant with them once again. And Almighty God says, no. The Lord says, no. I want to skip ahead to verse 18 to show you how this works. And then we'll come back to verse 9 and following to fill in the details. But it's very important for us to grasp that Elijah, this great man of God, who's praying for what we would consider to be a good thing, the answer the Lord gives to his prayer is no. In verse 18, the Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, <coughs> and every mouth 
but has not kissed him. Now, the ESV gets the point right here. Some of your translations will read this a little differently. But the Lord is not saying, I have happened to keep 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. This is a forward-looking, ongoing commitment of the Lord to preserve a remnant. Elijah's saying, Lord, renew your covenant with Israel. And God says, no, I'm going to do it with the remnant. And actually, from this time all the way up to the coming of Christ, there's only a remnant of the northern tribes that are truly God's people. It may seem like good news that the Lord is maintaining this commitment to maintaining a remnant, and it is. But it is a small part of Israel, and it's a small part that is in contrast to the whole. Elijah had been working and praying for revival and reformation in Israel. That didn't happen after the Lord sent down fire on Mount Carmel. But Elijah was still praying that the Lord would do something dramatic. Hold, hold on to that thought as we interpret this passage. But the Lord would do a second dramatic thing, or really a third, because the rain was dramatic too, to bring this hope for revival and reformation to pass. And he was praying that the Lord would renew his covenant with the whole of Israel, and Almighty God said, no, not with the nation, only with the remnant. Now, this may be a new way of thinking about this passage for many of you, so let's just keep reading and see if this actually fits what the author of 1 Kings is telling us. Verses 9 and 10. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now one of the problems in reading any document is we don't have tone of voice. Tone of voice can change the meaning a great deal on these sorts of statements. I take the Lord's question not as a rebuke, but as a tender invitation. Uh, for one thing, it is the angel of the Lord who has sent Elijah here. Right? It's not like he's saying, why are you here? You ought to be up in, in Israel. Right? That, that's not what's going on. But I also think that, that the tender sort of approach that the Lord is, uh, of understanding how the Lord is talking to him, fits much better with how the Lord had encountered Elijah out in the wilderness while Elijah was saying, take my life, I'm so in such despair. There the Lord tenderly ministered to him, providing him with food and drink and a new mission without rebuking him at all. The Lord is tenderly inviting Elijah to unburden his soul. How we understand Elijah's reply is a bit more tricky uh, but it seems best to me that we take it at face value. This is God's man on God's mission, really broken in many ways, but, but that his words are actually true. Uh, we're going to see that the Lord agrees with these words when we see how the Lord acts on them for bringing judgment upon Israel in just a moment. Uh, but I would also point out a parallelism here. 
Uh, not that at that moment, that is while Moses is on Mount Sinai after the golden calf, they weren't seeking his life, but actually Moses, like Elijah, was very much all alone. Even his brother Aaron had participated in the idolatry around the golden calf. And Elijah's simply saying, that's where I am. Now, he doesn't mean there aren't any other believers in Israel. He knows there are prophets hidden in the caves and so on. But in terms of the public ministry of standing for Yahweh, he in fact is the only one left. I want to suggest that the real challenge of taking Elijah's testimony at face value is not with seeing how it fits with the flow of the passage. It does that. It is about taking Elijah's that it is about how when we take Elijah's testimony at face value, it can be deeply convicting. Do I care as much about the purity of the church today as Elijah cared about the purity of the church in Israel in his day? And I want to say that when I think about that, about how deeply Elijah cared about Israel's lack of fidelity to the Lord, in light of the broad lack of fidelity to the Lord in the modern church, I find that a bit convicting. That it doesn't bother me as much. And I'm a pastor, right? This ought to bother me more than it does. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. These verses have been tortured almost beyond recognition in North American evangelicalism. Here's a key question that I want each of you to be able to both ask and to answer. What do these verses tell you about the way that the Lord ordinarily speaks with his people today? Do you understand the question? What do these verses tell you about how the Lord ordinarily speaks with his people today? Here is the plain, accurate, and unequivocal answer. They tell us absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. How does the Lord speak with his people today? through his word read and preached, through the sacraments. You should have zero expectation 
of hearing a still small voice from God. That this is not designed as a pattern for all of God's people. Elijah's experience on Mount Horeb is not intended to represent a normal way of hearing from God in either the Old or the New Covenants. It was meant to convey something very specific and actually a very extraordinary way to Elijah, the prophet. Two things. Uh, first is a general principle for how you read the Bible. Please do not take every experience you encounter because uh, it's in the Bible and imagine that you should have the same experience. And I think you get this in most areas. You know, Jesus calls Peter to get out of the boat and Peter walks on the water. Now, beloved, you ought not to try that the next time you're out on the lake. It isn't going to work for you. Uh, when you read about Pentecost in Acts 2, you should realize that this was a unique experience in redemptive history. Uh, praying for a second Pentecost is as wrong-headed as praying that Christ would rise from the dead a second time. But that, that's not how those passages are intended to work. And if you, were, you start by assuming that the Lord speaking to Elijah in a still small voice was supposed to be a pattern for all Christians today, then what are you going to do with the lightning and the wind, right, that tears the rocks apart that the Lord sends on before him? Is that supposed to be ordinary as well? And what do you say when you sing the Psalms? I mean, think about Psalm 29. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And so you ask, which is it? Is it a small, still voice? Or, or is it with a loud, thundering voice that's going to shatter the very cedars of Lebanon? And the answer is, we should expect neither of those things. Now, they're not in the Bible because that's the ordinary way God talks to us. They're ways of expressing things that God has done. Right? Instead of applying these experiences directly to ourselves, we remember that while all of God's word is for us, very little of God's word is to us. And to rightly interpret it, we first have to think, what did it mean to those who were experiencing it? That is Elijah. And what did it mean to the first audience? In this case, the original audience to first kings. And we understand it and apply it to ourselves after we understand it and apply it to them. Second, when we stop and ask what these events meant for Elijah, everything falls into place. Elijah wanted the Lord to do something dramatic. But the Lord was not in the wind, or in the fire, or in the earthquake. The Lord came to Elijah with a still small voice. A whisper, as it were. The key thing, then, is what does that voice say? See, God's, God's communicating to Elijah, I'm not going to do a second dramatic thing. I'm not in the earthquake here. That's a general rule, but now I'm coming with instructions. Nevertheless, I am acting. I am acting by telling you what you need to do. And what did the Lord's small, still voice actually say? 
verses 15 through 17. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Do you see it? First, just because Elijah's plans were not coming to pass does not mean that God's plans were not coming to pass. God was very much still at work. The Lord is still in charge. His plans are still going to come to pass. Therefore, Elijah the prophet has work still to do. We can bring that up to date. Jesus is good. Jesus is in charge. Both of those truths are good news for the people of God. Jesus is good. Jesus is in charge. Even when my plans don't come to pass. Second, please notice that what the Lord is announcing to Elijah is judgment. Elijah is to anoint three men. He is to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to be the prophet in Elijah's place. And we do not have to wonder about what the Lord intended for them to do. The message is one of unrelenting judgment. Israel is going to come under the sword. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And if you keep reading in 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, uh, which is always the right practice, right? The, the most important hermeneutical principle is just keep reading. You're going to discover that Syria becomes Israel's greatest enemy, going to war with them. You're going to discover that Jehu is actually a very brutal man. He is going to uh, crush Jezebel, have her thrown off the wall, and splatter her blood on the ground, and the dogs are going to lick up her blood. And he's going to be carrying out God's judgment as he does so. Elijah, that great man of God, was pleading for the Lord to send revival and reformation. He was pleading that the Lord would restore his covenant with all the people of Israel. And the Lord answered Elijah's prayers by saying no. Here's a question for you to ask. Does the Lord ever say no to your prayers? It's not that he's not listening. He's listening, and he says no. Beloved, if the Lord never says no to your prayers, you're not praying very much, or you're not praying about very important things. We are called to take things that seem good in our eyes. I mean, Elijah's prayers were certainly good in his eyes, and God had already done this before. You ought to be praying big prayers. Sometimes God is going to say no, and that's actually really good news, because the Lord knows better than we do. When God says no to my plans, I have to remind myself his ways are perfect. It is a beautiful thing, but the Lord says no to me to say yes to that which is better. 
that God sometimes says no to our prayers, even when they seem good to us, reminds us that Jesus is in charge. And while we do not always understand why God says no, we should always rejoice that he does when he does. The Lord is far wiser and more compassionate than we are, and there is absolutely no shadow of turning in him. So go ahead, storm heaven zealously with your prayers, but hold your own plans loosely. All our prayers need to be offered with the qualifier, nevertheless, O Lord, not my will, but your will be done. For when God's plans and our plans differ, God's plans are the best. Beloved, Jesus is good, and Jesus is in charge. And those two truths fit beautifully together. Look one more time with me at verse 18. Verse 18. The Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now at first blush, this might seem like really bad news, and it turns out it is bad news for Israel. God is saying, I'm not going to renew my covenant with the whole nation, only with the remnant. Almighty God is bringing Israel into judgment. In less than 150 years, in 722 B.C., Assyria will wipe out the northern tribes and they will be scattered. And only a tiny remnant will escape to Judah in the south. That's a reminder of it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Due to their persistent apostasy, the Lord had cut Israel off. And if you read Hosea, he says there, they are not my people because of their spiritual adultery. Only a small remnant of the northern tribes will go into Judah after 722 B.C., and their descendants will be sent into the Babylonian exile. And then only a small remnant will be called out of the Babylonian exile back into Israel. It's actually astonishing to go back and read Zechariah and Malachi and so on and realize how few people even return. And sadly, many of their descendants will be enticed to Hellenize, that is, to embrace the Greek culture and then the Roman culture in order to get ahead in this world, rather than to remain faithful to the living God. And yet, isn't God good? The same Lord who declared that Israel is no longer my people also promises through Hosea that when his Messiah comes, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where I said, you are not my people, there it shall be said, you are the sons of the living God. And in the perfect wisdom of God, this hardening of Israel was for the purpose of bringing blessing to the world. You see that in the book of Romans. Ultimately, the remnant will come down to just one man, the man Christ Jesus. They will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then this one truly faithful Israelite 
who always loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. He will conquer Satan, sin, and death by giving his life for the life of the world. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus will redeem a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Beloved, Jesus is good, Jesus is in charge, and Jesus wins. And now our victorious Savior is calling us to be part of the greatest vocation that any of us can ever participate in. He is calling us to be part of his own mission to reconcile the world to his Father as we announce the greatest news that has ever been told. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Will you join me in this work? Will it be easy? No. Will it be costly? Yes. Look at the life of Elijah and see how much putting first the kingdom of God cost the prophet Elijah. Then lift your eyes to the king who is seated on his throne. Lift your eyes and see that Jesus is not only calling us to something that is truly great, he is calling us to a mission that cannot fail. Because Jesus is good. Jesus is in charge. And Jesus wins. Amen.